Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. Avid listeners of the show may have noticed a distinct absence in the past couple of weeks, a void in our usual recording staff. Someone who was seemingly absent, gone to the Great White North, and that person was... He's back! Eli Koaz. I'm Eli Koaz. And for those that did not miss me, because you have, obviously, a better radio voice, I apologize. For those who did not miss him, he's not Eli Koaz. But for those who missed me, so my mother and my aunt, I'm back. And here he is. And safe and sound in Vancouver, where you recently celebrated Lagbomer, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, I celebrated Lagbomer in a very socially distant way, I may add. Obviously abiding by the restrictions, keeping people safe. We value public health here on Israel Policy Pod as elsewhere, but it's good to know that we have you back on this podcast because it's crazy times as ever in Israeli politics. The new Israeli government was supposed to be sworn in today. After three consecutive elections in the span of less than a year, it seemed like Israel was finally heading into having a stable government. Now, the the substantive consequences of that annexation may not be so good, but this was at least a break from the stagnation and uncertainty that the period of successive elections characterized. But not to miss their reputation for crazy politics, Israel has had another upset here, and the swearing-in ceremony is now delayed to Sunday. This is true, Evan, and it is good to be back. I think that this delay is more of a formality than anything. I don't think that somehow everything will fall apart and Israel will be on its way to another election. Most of the issues here have to do with internal Likud politics, and some veteran Likud lawmakers who are previously ministers that, let's say, Netanyahu has plans to demote in a way, whereas he's obviously giving those that have been most loyal to him, uh, we could call it promotions. And we're talking about a lot of ministers here, right? This government, I mean, I think the final number is 34 ministerial posts, one of the most in any country in the world. I'm, I'm surprised that you weren't given an offer uh, to be a minister. Oh, mine is coming in the mail. I mean, things are a little delayed with COVID, but you're right. If you look at how this stacks up, for example, against the United States, it was initially 32 to expand to 36. And then, as you mentioned, it fell to 34 ministers in the cabinet. Here in the United States, we don't have ministerial portfolios, but we do have executive departments. And there are only 15 executive departments and then an additional eight members of the U.S. cabinet. So when you think the major ministries, you have like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is like our Department of State, the Ministry of Defense, just like the Defense Department. But then you start getting into these ministries, which are kind of just made up for the sake of giving someone a job, which maybe is a innovative way to help solve Israel's economic crisis as a result of the pandemic, but really isn't necessarily a path to more effective government. But Eli, you mentioned that this delay in the swearing-in was related to some internal Likud politics. Now, 
two Likud members of Knesset boycotted what was supposed to be the swearing-in ceremony today because they didn't get ministerial portfolios. You mentioned that these were Likud veterans. I think we should touch upon why these two wanted ministerial portfolios, who they are. For sure, of course. So, I mean, for those that are familiar with the names, the two members of Knesset from the Likud that caused this uproar... Their names are Avi Dichter, who people may have heard because he is a former security chief. He was director of the Shin Bet, and he was previously a member of Kadima. He is one of them, and the second one is Tzachi Hanegbi, another longtime Likud lawmaker who is considered to be, I don't know if we should say, on the left of the Likud party, but not one of the extremists and kind of an old Maybe one of the last of the like old Likud guard, even though he's kind of capitulated. Tzachi Hanegbi, like Avi Dichter, was also in Kadima, which, for those who aren't familiar, was a party that Ariel Sharon formed. He was initially Likud prime minister, and then over the Gaza disengagement, split away, created his own party that was a little bit to the left of Likud, more in the center of the political spectrum, and that was Kadima. So Avi Dichter did have some small ministerial posts in the past, but at the moment, or at least in the last government, the last stable government, Dichter was without a post. I'm assuming that Netanyahu promised him something, because obviously as a veteran lawmaker, he was disappointed, and it seems like either the post that he was offered, if at all, is not good enough. And from Hanegbi's perspective, Hanegbi has had ministerial posts galore most recently during the last government. And when I say government, I don't mean transitional government. I mean the government that existed from the 2015 elections. Hanegbi was the minister of regional uh, regional affairs, regional cooperation. I forget the exact terminology. And during the transitional government, he was the agricultural minister. I would assume that Netanyahu is either offering both of these very minor role. And if that's not the case, they could just be left off of the ministerial slate you bring up Dichter and the roles that he's had in the past. As you mentioned, of course, Shin Bet Director, which is probably where most people know him from. He also served in this position called Minister of Home Front Defense, which we were talking about this idea of made-up ministries or positions that are mostly vanity portfolios and don't really have an actual institution underneath them. This is kind of one of those positions that's been created in the past 10 years for that purpose, just kind of to give someone a portfolio and a seat in the cabinet. Tzachi Hanegbi, it's easy to understand why he might feel burned. He's been a member of Knesset for more than 30 years, and he held a ministerial portfolio for 12 out of the last 24 years. So easy to understand why he feels burned here. And there's an added element to all of this, which is that this is a government that's been formed with a unity agreement between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, leading his faction of what used to be Kachol Lavan, his faction still being called Kachol Lavan. Under the terms of their arrangement, you would have these 34 ministers and every single person in the Benny Gantz block, which includes Kachol Lavan, Derech Eretz, and Labor, the latter two being two-person parties, both receiving pretty high-profile ministerial posts. Right. So from an internally coup politics standpoint, you can understand why these people might feel burned that you have people in a party like Labor that, that Netanyahu doesn't even need Labor in order to have a majority 
or Derech Eretz, Netanyahu doesn't need them. This is the, the two people, Hendel and Hauser, who formed their own breakaway faction out of Kahol Lavan. He doesn't need either of those parties to have a government, and yet they're all getting portfolios, and there are people who are fairly senior within Likud who are not. Now, Netanyahu has been known to dole out jobs on a political basis in order to suit his interests. He recently appointed Gilad Erdan to be the next Israeli ambassador, unusually both to the United Nations and to the United States. And that's a position, the ambassador to the UN, that Netanyahu likes to give to people that he doesn't want spending too much time in Israel, where they might pose a problem for him. Most recently, one of his past Likud primary rivals, Danny Danone, held that post, and that's who is going to hand it over to Gilad Erdan. So, This level of discontent, I think, gives a preview of things to come in the very unlikely event that the rotation agreement actually goes through. This is this agreement that Gantz would take over the government and become prime minister in 18 months. He's going to be presiding over a government that may feel slighted by him and may feel like they don't even need him. They don't need his small party to function as a government. And I think it speaks to the level of political clout that Gantz surrendered in making the arrangement that he did with Netanyahu. Gilad Erdan, who actually served as the Minister of Public Security before receiving this indication that he would replace Ron Dermer and Danny Danone, respectively, as the ambassador to the UN and the ambassador to the United States, he is being replaced by Amir Ohana, who's one of those younger Likud MKs who have just sworn allegiance to Netanyahu and gone through great lengths to protect him against, especially against his legal predicaments. Amir Ohana is going to become the public security minister, previously served as justice minister for a short period of time where he really stood up for Netanyahu. And obviously the justice portfolio is one of those portfolios that the Likud had to give up to Kahol Avan, and the Minister of Justice will be Avi Nisankoren, a former head of the Histadrut. Now, what I think is actually most interesting about what this coalition will look like, because I'm assuming that this issue with Dichter and Hanegbi will be sorted out, whether Dichter and Hanegbi like it or not, is that Yamina, Naftali Bennett's party, is not part of the coalition. And they're not joining right now, and they may not be joining for the duration of this government. Now, this is very interesting because Yamina are a natural ally of the Likud party. One member of Yamina, Rabbi Rafi Peretz, is actually defecting from the party and joining the coalition. Remember, Rafi Peretz was education minister during the transitional government phase, he was also the former chief rabbi of the IDF. He'll be receiving a ministerial portfolio. I believe that's the Minister of Jerusalem Heritage, or, I mean, we can make names up of ministerial uh, posts all day, but that will be his position. But from Naftali Bennett's perspective, this is interesting. Naftali Bennett was defense minister during this, at least the first part of the COVID-19 crisis, um, and he actually received very popular and positive reviews from the Israeli public, definitely took advantage of his short time in the position. And remember, this is the Naftali Bennett that was left actually below the Knesset threshold if we go, what is it, two election cycles back, three cycles back? 
Right, that was after the April 2019 election when he ran as part of the new right party that he created with Ayel Chaked. Exactly. So, I mean, to his credit, his popularity is surging, and there have been kind of a war of words coming from Yamina and from the Likud and vice versa. Obviously, Yamina had recommended Netanyahu as their candidate for PM almost exclusively. Netanyahu really, when it came to the last few days of each of these election campaigns, he would almost take a significant uh, portion of Yamina's votes. And Bennett himself today declared that uh, Netanyahu has surrendered to the left. And speaking about uh, West Bank annexation, which obviously we're focusing on, Bennett is accusing Netanyahu of surrendering to the left on this particular issue. Now, obviously, we're, on, we're, we're not so sure about that, and we think that Netanyahu may still be eyeing some sort of annexation with this government. But it's definitely an interesting thing to look at, that two prominent, very prominent Israeli politicians, Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked, are going to be in the opposition together with Yair Lapid and Yeshatid and, and the joint list. So it's going to be an interesting uh, mix of parties. And even Lapid sent Bennett a message saying, like, welcome to the opposition. So that was on Facebook, which was interesting to see because... At face value, Bennett and Lapid have a lot of different opinions, but in, but they obviously they did serve in a government through the 2013 elections. So interesting to follow how Yamina navigate from here on out. And this has always been an issue with the Israeli opposition in the last couple of years is that the government seems to have some degree of ideological glue holding them together. But as you mentioned, you have the joint list, you have merits, you have Yisrael Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman's right-wing party, now Yamina, the party... Uh, religious nationalists supporting settlement interests there, and then you have Yeshatid on the center-left. So it is an odd mix, and it's not necessarily a cohesive group. And as Naftali Bennett himself said in making his announcement about joining the opposition, he said that we're going to be critical when we need to, and we'll be supportive when we need to. So if and when annexation, and, and I think it, it's increasingly a question of when, although things could always change, if and when annexation comes before the Knesset, Bennett can always support it. Of course, that's an important point. I think it'll be hard for him not to, but in word, not necessarily indeed, but in word and the messaging that he sends out, he'll say that it's not enough annexation. I mean, Bennett's plan is for Area C annexation. That's 60% of the West Bank territory. The Trump plan, which is implicitly the basis for the annexation envisioned under the coalition agreement, is about 30% of the West Bank territory. Now, the assessment that you'll hear from most security experts is that this kind of partial annexation, whether it's 60% under Area C or 30% under the Trump plan, in leaving behind a non-contiguous Palestinian entity, that's going to still lead you to a de facto one-state outcome. But in the fighting between the different segments of the Israeli right, the, the right, the far right, and the further right, this may make some difference, at least for the sake of creating the pretense of some kind of political fight between them. But I think that Bennett will still support the annexation envisioned under the Trump plan. And just one last word on that. I mean, we've already kind of seen this fight borne out in another arena. When the Trump plan was first announced, Netanyahu came to Washington with a delegation of mayors 
from the Yesha Council. That's the umbrella organization that is the leaders of the different Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And initially, they were kind of reticent about supporting the Trump plan because, again, it's not full annexation in in word, at least. I mean, in practice, it, it'll probably could lead to something of that nature. So they were initially hesitant about it, but eventually they came around and their position was, well, it's a start. It's a step in the right direction. And Naftali Bennett, who has been the annexation champion for the past couple of years, will be probably hard pressed to not support it. But he can stay in the opposition. He and Ayala Shaked, the other leader of that party, are younger. They're in their 40s. They have many years and decades ahead in their political careers, probably, although there could be other upsets. And so they have time to maneuver politically, even if they're probably supporting the same substantive policy objectives. Sure. I'll just clarify one thing that you mentioned about the coalition agreement itself. It doesn't include any specific annexation proposals. Yes, there is a chance that the proposal could be based on the Trump plan, which does, as you mentioned, call for 30% Israeli annexation of the West Bank. I think it's also a likely scenario that if annexation moves forward, that either annexation of just the Jordan Valley or the Jordan Valley plus all the Israeli settlements Those could be two other options, which would equate to less than 30% of the West Bank. I didn't say that the Trump plan was mentioned in the coalition. No, but you said that. I want to be clear about that. I said it was implicitly the Trump plan because the coalition coalition agreement. It wasn't implicitly the Trump plan. It said with U.S. proposed. It says in coordination with the the United States, and the United States policy right now is the Trump plan. Yeah, but the policy is the Trump plan is done as part of like uh, a piece of a solution with the Palestinians. So that's also. I'm not saying that you're wrong about the Jordan Valley or that it, it might just be the Jordan Valley or it might might just be Male Adumim or something like that. But the Trump plan in, in the, the actual peace to prosperity document is pretty clear that you don't even need peace with the Palestinians for Israel to go ahead and annex all of the territories that are envisioned to be part of Israel under the Trump plan. Without Naftali Bennett, I think that that 30%, at least at first, seems awfully high. So I'm thinking that the other two options are more likely, and there's also a likely option of no annexation at all, but we can get into that later. But what I do want to point out is that in the coalition platform, which was released yesterday, there's no mention at all of implementing or extending sovereignty or annexation. Bennett was quick to point that out, but that's also something that we should look at because it's an indication that it seems that maybe annexation will not be as big of a priority for this government as we first thought. And maybe that original coalition agreement with Blue and White was kind of a tool to try to get Bennett to join the coalition. We'll have to wait and see. But it's interesting that it was left out because it seems like if it is a core mission of this government, it's something that would be part of a coalition platform. Sure. But the whims of this particular government also may end up not mattering. Everything that we just debated could be completely immaterial because there's the elephant in the room of the United States here, which is also pushing annexation on its own. I mean, we just had Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in Israel. We know that they talked about China and Israel, which is also the subject of one of our recent podcasts with Shira Efron. I encourage everyone to go listen to that. They talked about Iran, but the United States has been really active in pushing annexation as part of the Trump plan. 
And our, our policy director, Michael Kopler, wrote in his column today, and, and I tend to agree with him on this, that Ambassador David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, who's been one of the biggest proponents of annexation from within the Trump administration, probably envisions something more expansive than what Netanyahu wants, and the Trump administration could, to some extent, force Israel's hand on this question, even if annexation was just a domestic political consideration for Netanyahu when it comes down to it, that may not matter in this case. So we'll have to see. Sure. And also, I think important to, I'll mention what the Likud statement responding to Yamina and responding to Bennett was, because it goes back to that Netanyahu promise of annexation that was left out of the coalition platform. The Likud responded, while Prime Minister Netanyahu applies sovereignty over Judea and Samaria as promised, and as it appears in coalition agreements, Bennett will spend his time in the opposition with Lieberman and Yazbak. Yazbak, obviously the joint list MK, who said controversial, very controversial things, um, praising uh, terrorists. And then they concluded the statement by saying the era of Bennett is over. So that's the Likud response. So obviously, annexation is still is still there. It's still a, a Likud priority, at least from this statement, despite not being in the coalition platform. This is just spitballing here, but I wonder also if it's possible that it could have been intentionally left out, sort of to give fuel to Bennett and give way to this fight between Bennett and Netanyahu, because each of them is kind of trying to outflank the other from the right and demonstrate that they're the one who's more committed to sovereignty, to annexation, to the settlements, and so on and so forth. For sure, because I'm sure there are a lot of right-wing right wing voters who are more, I'm not talking about more pragmatic right-wing voters, more of the national religious voters and voters with a far-right right-wing ideology that were expecting with certainty that Yamina and Bennett and Shaked would be part of this government, and to their dismay, they're not. So obviously Netanyahu is looking for the best, the best way out. And I'm looking for a good way out of this podcast, even though it's been a really good discussion. You and I went into this recording and said that we were going to do a 10-minute podcast. Now on the raw recording, we are up to almost 27 minutes. Surely it will be shorter when you, the listener, get to this. We're almost up to the amount of minutes that would equate to the number of ministerial posts in the new Israeli government. And we have exceeded the number of deputy ministers. Now, Eli mentioned earlier that it's a surprise that I haven't gotten a ministerial portfolio already, but little do you know, I actually have. I'm the Minister of Telephone Cooperation, and that is according to a very funny meme that I saw circulating on Twitter that was one of those where you pair your birth month and your birth date up to just a random set of words, and then you get your ministerial portfolio. I think you were, what, like the Minister of International Services or something. And International Services. I would think that you would be a perfect Minister of Magic, because obviously you love Magic the Gathering, or maybe maybe even Minister of Air Transportation, because you have an affection for airplane food. So I think either of those would be perfect for you. Yes, yeah, so all, all, re- all references that our, our listeners will be intimately familiar with, Eli. Of course, of course. Well, oh, I should clarify. Evan Gossman loves airplane food. He thinks it's a great portion size and it's very tasty, no matter no matter what the airline. But he particularly likes the Alaska Airlines food, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, so as all of you can imagine, this has been a particularly difficult time for me. On top of all of the other terrible effects of the pandemic, I haven't eaten airline food in quite some time. But I remain hopeful that I will eat airline food again sometime in the near future. And I want to wish all of our other listeners well that they will be able to do the same or whatever it is that brings you joy that maybe you aren't being able to do right now because of this pandemic. But there are things that you can do during this period of lockdowns and shelters in place. And one of those is tune in to Israel Policy Forum's new Annexation Watch video briefing series. Now, this is a series that is going to be taking over the same time slot, you could say annexing the same time slot that we were using. How about applying sovereignty? Makes it a little more ambiguous, but it's going to be in the same time slot as our previous Tuesday video briefing series that we know that many of you have tuned into. So it's going to be every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, and we're going to be kicking it off on Tuesday, May 19th. That's this upcoming Tuesday. These are sessions that are going to feature high-level speakers from the political arena, the diplomatic community, highlighting the reactions to West Bank annexation that are going to be coming from important actors, people in Israeli politics, in the Arab world, among the Palestinians, in the international community. And our first session, we have a great lineup, we have three members of Knesset, a member of Knesset, Ram Ben Barak, from Yeshatid Telem, who is also a former deputy director of the Mossad, member of Knesset, Yair Golan, of the Israel Democratic Party, and former deputy chief of staff of the Israel Defense Forces, also our previous annual event speaker, and Ida Tuma Sliman of Khadash from the Joint List, who was also a previous guest on this podcast. So we know it's going to be a really great panel and a really interesting discussion. They're going to be talking about how the Israeli opposition is confronting annexation, and you can register for that event at ipf.li forward slash May 19. That's the numbers 19. Eli, as an avid watcher of Israeli politics, I know that I can depend on you being there for this coming Tuesday's video briefing with those three members of Knesset. I will be there. It sounds like a great, great panel, and I'm very, very excited. And to continue providing you with these resources at this time, including this podcast, which, as you may know, we are now publishing twice a week, as well as these upcoming video briefings, all of our IPF Atid Young Professional Gatherings, the Coplau column, we're continuing our work in Washington with policymakers. We depend on your generous support. So I want to thank all of you who have already made a contribution, all of our supporters who listen to this podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to make a contribution. And you can do that on our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thanks for tuning in. Be well, be healthy. Yalla bye.